0: We did some research around the last two years of our projects, and we were trying to understand the themes of why did certain rebrands turn out to be super successful with really great outcomes for the business? And, and why did other ones maybe not seem so successful or produce the same results? And one of the findings was the profile of the leader
1: on the client side. You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by the people of Nice Work. One of the things we often catch ourselves saying is, can we ask you one more question? This podcast is all about sharing that, the best conversations we've had with significant brand builders, experts, and communicators. The people that we've encountered as we go about our work of making people care by creating impactful brands. Season three is focused on unpacking the topic of branding. We talk to people who design brands, own brands, build brands, and even those who hire for brands. We explore what brands look like and how they behave across a wide spectrum, from world-renowned brands with massive budgets like Spotify, to companies that are making big waves on small budgets. If you're looking for insights on the best ways to invest in and build your brand, this is the season for you. I'm your host, Ross Drex. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Blake Howard. Blake is the creative director and co-founder of Matchstick. An atlanta-based brand identity firm for the last 20 years he's focused on helping growing companies level up their brand by being radically relevant his work ranges from global firms like mailchimp and spanks or the city of atlanta all the way to the next generation of ambitious startups blake is a very busy person he's the co-host of the atlanta chapter of creative mornings which is the biggest in america where he hosts outrageous competitions on stage he speaks on brand identity and has great stages like IGEA, and if that wasn't enough, he hosts two podcasts, The Creative Rising and A Change of Brand. He's also probably one of the most generous people that I've ever met. We talk about how to be radically relevant, sticking true to your values, and how to find the right creative team to work with. He shares how clients can use creative teams to get the best out of them, and how to be global, but locally relevant enjoy thank you for coming on the podcast Blake. i, I really appreciate it this was a, a long time organizing but um i'm excited to to for this to be the first one of 2021 yeah thanks for having me ross uh, i think let's let's start right at the beginning i mean i love i love how you've branded your agency at least how you talk about your work um can you can you talk a little bit about like helping the small be mighty in that concept? Like, I mean, I, I really love that as a as a thing to tie a business together.
0: Yeah, well, a lot of our work is you know working with we sort of call them challenger brands, midsize, growing businesses that maybe had an initial identity at launch to get funding and sort of prove their business concept, and then they grow and they're successful, and they realize that they need to. Re-establish, or sort of take their identity to the next level, or maybe they've they've outgrown their original brand identity, and, and so they need to r- sort of re look inside and see who they are, what's really true about them, how do they add value to the world, what makes them really unique and radical, and they need to tell that new story out into the marketplace. and And um, one one of a one of the clients that we've we've worked with, they were in that exact scenario. They are a fintech brand and they do really small micro loans to entrepreneurs. And so we, we looked deep inside of what was true about them. We talked to a lot of their customers and that was, that was one core essential truth that we, that we learned and that we heard is that they really fight for this, the small entrepreneur, we call it micro entrepreneur. So two to three people barely have staff. They're, they're sort of doing all of the work themselves. they're. They're managing the work all themselves and they're the brains behind their operation, you know? And so this particular client that we worked with, we helped them unearth that truth that they helped the small be mighty. Um, and that became really profound for their business. And, and we find that to be true for us as well. So we, we want to give those up and coming businesses a fighting chance. You know, sometimes the large brands that are out there that are dominant players in the market... They have teams and agencies and groups and lots of resources and money to throw out their marketing capabilities and making sure that they have a good positive reputation out in the market. And that's just not always the case for those smaller businesses. So we can come in, help them define who they truly are, what makes them unique and, and radical so that they can cut through the clutter and kind of go to market with uh, a unique voice and a unique visual.
1: I mean, I find that very interesting because I think... So often, when you speak to creatives and creative agencies, they're all really pushing for those big clients. They want the, you know, they want those huge clients. They want to go after those massive brands. Like, is this something that you've always wanted to do, or is it? if you just sort of ended up there? Because you've been going for fifteen or sixteen years. How long? How long has Matchstick been going? Seventeen years. Uh, 17. In
0: October of twenty twenty. So yeah we 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 have been doing this for a while i do think you know we've worked with large large clients we we've worked with fortune 500 fortune 10 organizations and and our work is valuable at that at that level i personally get more energized when we help that entrepreneur or that startup or that that mid-sized group that has a lot of potential and you can see it maybe it's in their product or maybe it's in their culture or maybe it's in the way they serve people. You can tell there's something really special and unique there, but then you look at how they're presenting that to the world and you see lots of potential for improvement. And, mm. and that exact scenario is where I just get excited, where it feels like we we really kind of add this spark of creativity and we help them present a more truer version of themselves to the world. and And maybe they never felt the benefit, the true benefit of having a brand that is radical, that is relevant, that is attractive. That I, I sort of think of a brand identity often as this metaphorical storefront, which feels a little vain and shallow and maybe discredits the thinking and the strategic work behind it. But you know at the end of the day, it really is this metaphorical storefront that people will walk past or digitally you know meander past and they'll see it and they'll decide in the blink of an eye do i want to engage with that or not and if they do engage then there's a lot of work to sort of keep them engaged and keep them inside mm-hmm. that metaphorical store via the experience and delivering on promises but you know brand identity really can just attract people in that front door and a lot of those small or mid-sized growing organizations they they lack that and that's where we can come in and help help equip them with it so you know we we do work with larger organizations i just personally like the uh the feeling of helping sort of that that person who really needs the help. You know, some of the larger organizations, if they don't hire us, they'll hire someone and they'll they'll be able to do something really spectacular for them or they have the capabilities in-house. But you know, there's always the underdog story that that we all sort of like and resonate with and and I'm no different.
1: I mean, I love I love that because you said some really interesting things in there. I think earlier you talked about unearthing that truth. Um, and you also phrased it as we can see that they have something, we can see it. we can we know that there's something special there, but they just haven't quite been able to surface it in a way that people can kind of latch onto. And I think that's such a, a powerful skill that the creatives have and designers have. and it's I think often the one of the strongest, kind of assets we bring to a business is that sort of, we can see these things that should be, that we think should be obvious, but ultimately are actually not super obvious. You know, I think and helping people unearth that and sort of own it and feel it, I think is such a a powerful and and generous thing to do.
0: Yeah. Uh, A mentor of mine calls that the blinding flash of the obvious that, you know, and and there's a, there's a phrase in the U S of cutting your own hair. You know it's like you don't want to cut your own hair. You can't see if it's going straight or sideways mm. or breathing your own exhaust. you know and in, in a lot of organizations, that's the case. they They can't see the obvious right in front of them. And creatives, especially at an agency, we have the gift of being an outsider, and we can bring a fresh, unique perspective. and and maybe on the inside of that organization, someone actually can see that essential truth. But, you know, there's the other saying of a prophet isn't welcome in their own town. <laughs> so they lack the credibility, maybe internally, no one really believes them. And then the agency folks come in as as the creative heroes, because they say basically yeah. the same thing.
1: Like, I've been saying that for the last six months. That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I mean, so, so can you talk a little bit about, you also, you frame yourself as being you know, the agency of the South and a lot of your work is very connected to Atlanta where you're based, you know, like why, why is that sort of locality so important and so sort of fundamental to the work that you do and the the brands that you build?
0: Yeah. Well, for us, we just, we love our city and we believe in Atlanta as a as a hotbed of creativity and a place that should be known for creativity, but it, but it hasn't been in its longevity as a city. There's a lot of great things that it is known for, and it has a really fantastic identity in in other facets. Um, but we just think branding places and businesses and nonprofits in Atlanta has a very, emotional connection to who we are and where we live and to our families and to more than just a job. And we, we find a lot of value in that. I find a lot of value in that driving around the city and having my kids point out logos that I've designed or created. And so there is a a sort of a connectedness to it that, that we really like. There's, there's functional benefits where, you know, pre, pre COVID there was a lot of value in being in the same room with our clients and really understanding their culture and their business. And, their marketplace and their customer and proximity played a big role in that. That's obviously shifted a bit now, but we're still very much connected to the city and we want to see the businesses that operate here thrive and excel. And, you know, there, there's just a little bit more of an emotional depth for us when we can see our work out visibly mm. in the city that we, we live in. For example, we, we redesigned the zoning signs for the city of Atlanta and in, in this was a little bit of a dream project and it's four or five years old now, but we were doing a project for the department of city planning, helping them sort of position how they want to be known. And much like any government department, they didn't have a great reputation. They they were sort of known for you go and you stand in line to get a permit for your residential fence and you're standing next to someone who's building a skyscraper. It was like the most inefficient process, you know, possible. It's like the DMV meets architect conversation. So they they were really interested in in changing the narrative about their work in their department with citizens and residents of Atlanta. And and so we went through this long process of helping them understand what was true about their department and how they add value to the residents of Atlanta. And one one observation was that you have these these permit signs that are all over the city that anytime you want to build onto your home or you want to renovate a home or a commercial property is being built or renovated. You had to put, you know, the, the certificate of appropriateness up in front of your building. And we, we saw that as an opportunity. At the time, they literally looked like a lawyer designed them, like a lawyer went to Microsoft Word, clicked File, <laughs> New, Open, and then just started typing in all caps, you know, like your grandmother texting you. And no one cared about them. They were visual spam all over the city. No one engaged with them. The whole point of them was to inform the public that this building site is appropriate, but no one cared. No one wanted to read the details. So to make a long story short, we went through a process to redesign that, and now they're all over the city and cities like San Francisco and l a reached out to the commissioner of the Department of City Planning in Atlanta and said, "How did you do it? Tell us about this because it was such a success, and it was really just a simple design exercise. There was no magic to it, and the magic was That we got it approved and then it actually happened, but now you (laughs) see those all over the city, and and my kids see them. Hey, daddy, there's your zoning signs, and it sort of elevated the creative perception of of our hometown, which is which is pretty cool that we were able to contribute towards that.
1: I mean, I like I like this. You know, they seem to be very rooted rooted in your city, and also wanting to sort of give back to it. But at the same time, I think in that ethos is this idea of of kind of lifting things to be bigger than they are, you know, so just cause it's for Atlanta doesn't mean it needs to stay in Atlanta. It could be that Atlanta can be the launching point for a countrywide brand or a nationwide brand or a, you know, a global brand. There's no reason that it couldn't, couldn't be born out there. And I think there's often a, a sense that, other cities other places are doing it better and i'm talking from experience here like we're in johannesburg in south africa and quite often you know small and medium companies are happy to to buy local work when someone becomes large the first thing they often do is they jump to a big london firm or they jump to a Mm. big new york firm or a big firm in la because that feels like where the the right stuff is coming from but i think it loses some of the the cultural nuance, you know, and the, the, the essence of what they are and where they were born is lost in that sort of that globalization of a brand. Is that something that you, you, you deliberately work in or is that, is, is that me just picking up something that isn't there?
0: No, I, I totally agree. And, and it pains me when really talented designers in Atlanta move to a big, a big market, New York or San Francisco. and there's the pursuit of I have to go there where these big opportunities are, which is, which is true. I want to see those opportunities remain in a city like Atlanta, because I Mm. think we can compete creatively with all of those other groups. that are in these major cities, if not do it more effectively for businesses that are more located or relevant to the Southeast where, where we are Uh, one, one great example. And I, I love to, throw this brand under the bus a little bit but it's kind of like a loving I'm a, actually a customer of there's a bank called SunTrust pretty pretty big bank in the south southeast on the east coast and they they merged with another bank BBT and they needed a new name and they hired Interbrand, I think it was Innerbrand out of New York to come up with a new name and they rebranded SunTrust which was very beloved in Atlanta the brave stadium is called SunTrust Park you know my personal bank accounts through SunTrust, our business bank accounts through SunTrust, really really good brand reputation. I know several people that work there. They they do great things on the nonprofit funding side, so great reputation. Well, they rebranded to Truist. Was the name Truist. And they're sort of s- still going through this, you know, move to eventually get rid of SunTrust and become Truist. And it, people in Atlanta hated the name. Truist, it felt altruistic, it felt like you're the Best bank, you're like this ideal state. You're not this sort of down south relatable bank that I've been with for years. Anyway, all that to say, I think it was a big miss. And and I can I can empathize with the group out of New York naming it, because to name a bank at this day and age to get a dot com is difficult. You're gonna have to have a fabricated <laughs> name. I get that, but I just feel like there was some some tonal misses with that that would not have been the case if it would have been done by a firm who better understood the cultural context of SunTrust.
1: That's so so interesting. And I think it'll be interesting to see how long it takes for that that misstep to, to stop haunting them because I think they're probably partway down that journey. And they realize that they can't turn back. You know, they're, they're not happy yeah. in the direction they're heading, but they've gone too far. They can't turn back. So now it's just about the time. And eventually people will forget. And eventually, you know, yeah. eventually it'll be a, a nothing. But they've got a couple of, of awkward years ahead of them while people still remember the, the old.
0: That's right. The yeah, my, my kids will grow up with fond emotional memories going to truest park where the Braves play, mm. <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll think SunTrust sounds weird at some point.
1: But it's amazing how I think so often when, when clients go and rebrand, they they often forget the context out of which they came, which is really important. And it's, it's almost what formed that company. Um, and I think Often, you know, you talk that you work at that moment when, when companies have almost reached a point where it's been kind of we've been cobbling it together or, you know, we've been sort of making do with what we have. And now we've reached the point that we want to kind of click into that next gear and push up to that next level. I think it's really important for people to remember context and the people that got them there and there's nothing wrong with projecting forward and and building a bigger brand and occupying a larger space but i think you know when you tone deaf to where you've come from it often can be quite a dangerous from a more from a relationship perspective with your existing clients and and the associations that they have i think can be a easy trap to fall into because the new always seems more shiny and the, you know, like it's much easier to just leave all that behind. But I think sometimes it doesn't necessarily work in your favor.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Especially if, if the reason for changing is shallow and vain, if, if there's no real impetus for change, then I think it becomes even more, um, clear that they're just trying to have the next shiny new object, you know, for, for example, mm-hmm. when gap changed their logo 10 years ago, now the, the famous gap logo fiasco, they, I've, i worked with a person who firsthand was involved in that scenario. And the, the uh, president or the CEO, I don't remember exactly who it was wanted to inject some new creativity into gap as a brand felt like it was stale. So they ha they had several ad agencies Do what's called a jump ball, all come in, pitch different ideas. One of the pitches, which was just sort of an out there idea, had that new logo on it, mocked up in the campaign. And this CEO, president person said, That's it. I want that. Go with it. And there was no feedback, there was no discussion, there was Mm. no creative process. It was just option three, let's go. And everyone said, All right. And they they started to implement it. And, And as it rolled out, people said, Why are you changing from this blue square that we've always known? To this new weird gradient square thing and the market reacted negatively and because there was no su- substance beneath the reason to change they jumped ship and they went they back to the it. old one and and you know it's gone down and history now is one of the most epic brand fails and i think that was because they were chasing the shiny just what you were saying they were just trying to do something fresh and new instead of putting that energy and effort into just changing their product just make your product more relevant And maybe, you know, change the way you think about your, your fashion sensibilities or whatever, Mm -hmm. nothing against people who buy Gap. I buy Gap sometimes, but you know, it's, it was like, just put that energy and effort into your product and make the customer experience better.
1: Don't, don't think about what's the shiny new logo to, to just jump towards. I mean, my my bugbear at the moment is the entire car industry is doing this. Everyone is rebranding and they're all going to these flat logos and the rationales all sound the same. They're like we're moving into a digital future of infinite possibility and technology and blah blah blah. And you just like this makes no sense. And then I saw Kia is busy rebranding now, and mm-hmm. they're doing it because they want to launch twenty electric vehicles in the next ten years and stop producing combustion engine cars. I'm like. That's a great reason to rebrand. It's a great yeah. reason to rebrand. It's a great talking point. You can use your visual mark to link that, and now people have something to talk about. Kia. It's quite like it's clever, as opposed to just going. We did a rebrand. Right. Yeah. Look Don't at it. Look nice. Ta-da. Yeah. yeah. And the copywriters wrote something beautiful and it sounds very good. And in the presentation, everyone is enamored, but as the end user, I'm struggling to find a reason to emotionally connect with this in any way, shape or form.
0: Yeah, that's right. There's a new podcast that I'm launching called A Change of Brand to document these exact types of stories. And one of the episodes that's that's coming up, and I just finished the interview uh, a few weeks back, was with Emily Oberman from pentagram and her process redesigning the warner brothers shield and, and it fits perfectly into that because the warner brothers shield if you remember it it has like the it's like the 3d ribbon and the you know it's very it's like beveled edges and very realistic gold shield mm. with the clouds in the background and it was originally created for for film it was it was created you know to be animated and. And they've really struggled over the years to shrink that down for social contexts and to take that banner and put other extensions in it. And, and so part of their rationale was to was to flatten it and to to really reduce it so that it would function better in all these new digital applications. And she talks through that whole journey. And there were so many negative reactions to that, to, to getting rid of the way the shield has looked forever. Because, you know, we grew up watching Warner Brother movies and in that. 10 yes. second intro you have an emotional connection on that water too. tower that's right and and uh hearing her journey and her story behind getting that change approved and some of the rationale has been really fascinating my, my favorite part of doing this new show is just hearing the designers who did the work themselves or the creative directors who, who led the process how they got that work approved how they justified the changes how they controlled the narrative as it launched how they dealt with the blowback you know did they consider re- reverting back did they just stay full steam ahead all of all of the drama that can happen behind the scenes that the public generally doesn't know about has been fascinating to
1: document and to hear about so so I guess I mean that that's really interesting and I think we've we sort of struggled straight into this territory of what not to do. We know when you're rebranding. Um, now let's, let's for a moment, let's, let's talk about if someone was wanting to rebrand, they've got this company, they've built it to a point and they feel that their clothing doesn't fit them so well anymore. And they need this thing. Like what is, what are the things that, that make a, a brand? Like when you go through this process, what are you looking for to, to, to pull out for these companies and and what do you think the brand does for them as a as a business so that they don't potentially make some of the mistakes that we just talked about
0: yeah well the, the first thing that we look for is is trying to understand the essence what, what is the most compelling unique truth about that business and and we ask two big picture fundamental questions that that we want to answer and it is important to answer those through the lens of the audience or the customer and not just through the, the operational mindset within the leadership of the organization. I think that's definitely a, a trap that people can fall into. Some assumptions can be made. But those two questions are, what is our unique contribution to the marketplace? What's really differentiated about what we do? And then what does our audience need? What does our audience really need? And where those two things overlap, where we have a unique contribution and what our audience needs, that's the beginning point for understanding that truth and that essence and that position to build the narrative around. So validating that through audience research is really important. Talking to customers, having an immersive experience of of feeling the customer feeling firsthand is, is really important. Sometimes, you know, because that requires research and that requires extra effort, and sometimes organizations say, we don't need that. We know we, we know what it is. It's this, this, and this. And and that might be true. They might, they might have a good sense for their finger on the pulse, but they also might be missing something that's incredibly valuable about, mm-hmm. about what they do because they're so close to it. So, you know, really defining first and answering those questions, we call that being radically relevant. W- what is our sort of radical side and what is our relevant side? And let's build a narrative around both of those. Let's be radically relevant. And, and once you have that clear and leadership is aligned around that truth, then you can start to build the narrative from a really solid foundation um, into the creative. So you can think about, okay, what's the right brand voice based on our radical relevance? What's the right look and feel based on our radical relevance? What is the right mark based on our radical relevance? And, And you can understand also the amount of change that's needed based on, okay, so let's say an organization was positioned For 10 years around x y and z but now they've drastically changed what that radical relevance is so we probably need to drastically change our visual identity as well we can gauge Mm -hmm. the amount of change needed based on the amount of change within that that position of that essence for the brand itself so once you get into the the creative you've got to be able to, to anchor it back to some strategic foundation to make sure you're, you're creating something that objectively makes sense and isn't just about your subjective likes or dislikes. And then you have to find the right way to execute and bring that to life out in the marketplace. And, and the part where it gets, I think, fun, you know, a lot of times graphic designers or those in the design profession, we're sort of relegated just to the visual side. But at the end of the day, if a brand really wants to make their identity, identity meaningful, they need to deliver on whatever the promise is. So whatever that radical relevance is, whatever the promise is, yes, we'll create something beautiful that connects back to it. We'll create some compelling messaging, but you've got to deliver on it. So let's talk about what that experience is and let's, let's, let's figure out ways that you are operationalizing these promises so that you actually deliver it because putting lipstick on a pig, giving you a, a vain makeover, but then you don't actually change that, that's a big miss and that's a waste of an investment.
1: I think, I mean, I think there's two really kind of precious nuggets in what you've just said there. I think the first one is, is it doesn't, a rebrand doesn't have to be extreme. If your positioning is not stuck jumping too far, it, it could be the right decision to just Modernise or refresh, or you know, tighten up. That could be a good choice if your positioning shifts. But if your positioning has radically jumped and your service offering is radically jumped, then it does necessitate quite a big visual shift because that's that's the signal that people will notice and then be like, "What's going on here?" And you go, "Well, I'm glad you've asked. You know, we've actually changed as a company and we have new products." And you know, are you in that sort of conversation um, driven by your your brand?
0: That's right. Yeah, and, and one of the other points I want to make about the process itself, and I think this is this is really interesting. We we did some research around the last two years of our projects, and we were trying to understand the themes of why did certain rebrands turn out to be super successful with really great outcomes for the business, and and why did other ones maybe not seem so successful or produce the same results. And one of the findings was the profile of the leader on the client side. So the right type of leader for a brand change is someone who is decisive. So they're able to make decisions. And yet at the same time, they want a collaborative discussion and they want input and they want feedback. And they also are willing to listen to their agency partner. So then that's a little bit of a contradiction because oftentimes people that are very dominant, that are good at making decisions, they're they're not good at letting others lead at the same time. You know, they kind of want to grab in and take the reins and their opinion trumps everything else. But we found that those leaders that that are willing to be brought to a decision point and say, okay, everyone, we're going to go this direction because X, Y, and Z and we we believe in this, while at the same time saying, okay, here we are. I want to hear feedback. Ross, what do you think? What is What does everyone else think? And they're very inclusive in that process. And they're willing to trust the experts in the room. That That's a unique combination for for a leader. But I think that's the key ingredient for stories that we hear about where there's really tremendous success from a rebrand and stories that we hear about that, that are more in that fail category.
1: Mm, I suppose and the failures are not often failures. They just take a lot longer to ultimately, you know, like there's a difference between if something really clicks, people pick it up immediately and start loving it and they carry a lot of the associations over. And then the other one it takes people a bit of time. They get shocked and then they need to get over the shock and then they need to familiarize themselves. And only then do they start that process of sort of assimilating the, the, the new brand and, and getting to what it was that you ultimately set out to do when you started the project. That's right. I think it's also interesting, you know, the other the other point that you made was around the delivery of the brand. And and I think this is where, you know, at Nice Work we see the biggest shift happening in in sort of creative services is that it's not a it's not a surface layer thing. It's very much like the brand needs to be represented in the culture of the organization. It needs to be represented in the delivery of the product. It needs to be represented in the way the the customers are thought about and how the work is, you know, the product or whatever is delivered to them, how they engage. It's, it's sort of a very deep thing. And the, the brand is almost just the the visual symbol onto which people can attach all of that. How have you found you know like did you in your when you were looking at those things did you find the clients that that were able to pull the brand very deep into the organization versus ones that weren't what were the the sort of differences there
0: yeah typically if if an organization is just looking for a creative expression they want to get to that quickly and they want to sort of jump the part of the process where we add that essential truth that definition of who are you deep down as an organization for whatever reason, maybe they already feel like they have that, or maybe they just they don't feel like that's that's a need right now. They want to get to the logo. That that is often where you don't see as much impact or change. So some organizations mm-hmm. really value that step in the process. Maybe they didn't even know that was going to be part of the identity journey. We worked with a local news station in Tampa, in uh, in Florida, in the United States, and we helped them position and sort of unearth this idea that. They deliver uh, deeper dives and sharper insights with the stories that they deliver in their in their local market as compared to the competition. And what I loved about that client, I told them they're like client of the year because they printed that phrase out in their newsroom and they trained all of their editors and all their journalists on that particular phrase and what it meant. and they focused all of their delivery of their content on that phrase it wasn't just a tagline. It wasn't just some creative brief language. It wasn't just in a fancy PDF. They put it in operations. They, they figured Mm. it out and they started to deliver content in a new way. They created a deeper dives YouTube channel for local stories and in their, in their market. And I was blown away. I was so excited because they got the full value out of what we do, not just a logo. Now they got a beautiful logo and, and the visual identity is super radical and the messaging is, is beautiful and awesome and, and relevant and compelling, but they, they actually implemented new behaviors internally based on that. And I do think there's been a shift over the last 10 to 20 years where brand It used to not, people would be confused on where does brand sit in the org chart is brand marketing is, mm. it has to be marketing, right? Like it's got to fit there. It doesn't fit anywhere else. It's not, or is it product? I, I don't really know where it would go. And so, I've always felt like brand does prevail all of these different departments. And it has to be sort of the ethos of the culture, because usually the people within the organizations are the ones delivering on whatever promises have been made by the marketing department. So it is Mm -hmm. sort of all encompassing of, of the organization and it has to start from the top down. It has to be led by whoever is at the top. They have to really believe in the values of that brand and they have to implement it internally And there's, there's been a little bit of a shift in strategic planning mindsets as well, where traditionally a strategic plan was created by a board or the C-suite. They would go do a retreat annually, maybe every couple of years, they would come back and they would say, Hey, organization, here's our new strategic plan for the next five years. And in it, we're going to consider our brand. Nowadays, I feel like there's brand definition Those same sort of retreats and conversations happen, but it's about our brand, our reputation, how do we want to be known in the market? And then they come back with a plan that operationalizes that. So it's sort of what comes first, the strategic planning or or the brand Mm -hmm. planning. And I feel like that's shifted over the years because brand prevails all other departments and it has to be sort of the defining element of the culture within an organization.
1: When I love that. It Also, I suppose it's the place where all the collaborations happen. It's where the product team and the marketing team, because the marketing team is the one that touches the market, but they also need to speak to the sales team because they're the ones who are ultimately in the room watching people's eyes light up or go dead when they talk about something. You know, They've got that sort of insight. And then the product team has got the, we know what works, we know what the trends are, we know what's coming. And then it's it's the culmination of all of that is almost where the brand needs to to sit because that is ultimately it that you you see the message you engage with the salesperson you get the product you have the experience and that's like a seamless sort of thing and then the visual mark becomes the the thing you can attach that full experience to and be like now nah, this is how i feel about that brand or that company as as a result of all of these interactions
0: yeah that's right and, and a lot of organizations see a rebrand effort as a one-off. They, they see the the start and the stop and they think, okay, this, this year we're going to invest in that. We're going to do it And brand should be seen as more evergreen and always evolving. And, and one thing that I see also that, that that can result in less of an impact from an effort of a rebrand is, you know, if an organization is coming to us to help them reestablish their visual verbal identity. And they they're they're not satisfied with what is currently in place. What currently in place is a result of the behaviors and the values of that internal culture, right? So they come mm-hmm. to us to change it and we present things in a PDF that look beautiful and we cast a vision for a color palette, typography, layout, new language, new brand voice, new positioning. We we sort of show them this ideal version of themselves. And then they they then go and take those learnings and and those beliefs and they implement them with that same internal team that, that made decisions that led them to a place that was dissatisfied. So if, if the, the culture and the beliefs of that creative team don't actually shift and change, whatever we create will eventually return back to what they were dissatisfied with. And that pains me as a, as a, idealist as someone who wants to see the most amazing versions of the work that we create. That pains me. It's like we, Mm -hmm. it's like raising a, a child that you love and you believe in, you see all this potential and you send them off to college or you send them out into the real world. And then you hear news of bad things happening, and they're they're slacking, and they're, <laughs> they've lost their job, and they're addicted to yeah. drugs, and you're like, "What is going on? What happened? You had so much potential, but that you know, we we see that sometimes where our work is implemented, and the original vision is not cast or is not um, seen because there is a culture within creative teams that if that doesn't actually shift or change, you're not going to see the full potential of of that identity. and And I think that the answer to that is. You have to make sure creative teams understand the new brand and the identity. Mm-hmm. They understand the spirit of what you're trying to create, not the letter of the law. We're no longer in, you know, the logo has to always go here, and this is the grid. This <laughs> header. Yeah, this is the grid that you can always follow. They have to be inspired by the visual identity. They have to understand how they can push it. Um, what what is most important in creating different materials? And if they don't feel empowered to implement those things. They're just gonna. F- they're gonna feel constrained to the rules of the guidelines, and it will eventually go back to whatever was dissatisfying at the, the beginning.
1: I love that, and I think it's part of the the challenge that that sits with creatives today. Is I think it's our job to to make sure that our work is socialized properly and that it's, it's accepted and that understood and, in, like, and loved and embraced and, and, and also designing for the skill level that, that sits back in that organization. So if you've got a complex thing that needs a beautiful illustrator to create a new artifact every time they need to do anything new – it's probably going to fail because they don't have that illustrator sitting in a house and it's unlikely that the company is going to want to spend the amount of money that it would take to have that level of craftsman work on every single piece. Um, I think the other thing is that the clients need to, to understand that they need to involve their teams in this process when they're pulling in an outsider, because sometimes they can feel threatened, or not understand, or you know, like, or, or feel like something really kind of basic has been missed in the process, and that's where the entropy sets in. That's where it starts to unravel the second it's it's launched into the company. So I think creatives need to step up a bit to be more responsible with how their work is delivered and landed and understood. And I think clients need to be more accepting that yes, you might be the leader, but. Ultimately, the people who implement this thing have to come on this journey because if they don't understand, they're not going to be able to pick up, batten up and, and run with it. And ultimately, they're going to end up frustrated in whatever, five years time back at a branding agency again, trying to fix the problem.
0: That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and I found that one really simple, easy way to address that is to just give a creative team space and a voice either in the process. Or in understanding these new guidelines, maybe that are associated with the rebrand, just give them some space to voice concerns, to voice appreciation, to voice anything. A lot of times they're Mm. just completely left out of the process and they're mandated with, you know, a 200 page PDF or digital guidelines. If you just give them a little space, it's very meaningful and very helpful.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, you you mentioned earlier that that you we come in, you know, companies like ours come in as outsiders and that's part of our value. But the 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 cost of that is we don't necessarily understand the nuance of, oh, but we have to deliver this to this machine in that way or to that person in this format or to that. And that's where those people have all of that super valuable insight and they're gonna look at this thing and be like, I love it, but that purple is just not going to make it through this machine. Like it's yeah. just, it's not going to do it. So therefore that's, it's like a bad choice, you know? And yeah. if you, if you sign it off at the top and give it to me, I'm never going to be able to actually execute it that's um, right. anywhere. And that's uh, where the resistance starts to form.
0: Yeah. And, and they, they have good concerns and valid thoughts to make sure that whatever an outsider creates is useful for them. So that they do have that knowledge. And I often say that, We are experts in brand identity, you client or the expert in whatever your business is. And and we could never understand your market, your industry as well as you do. And you can't understand brand identity as well as we can. So that's where we have to have a really good relationship. We have to trust each other and collaborate. And we're not going to disappear for a few months and then pull up Paul Rand and say, here's your logo. Now pay us. You know, It's got to be a collaborative, iterative process that we both engage in to create something that's really useful and effective and brings that outside perspective.
1: I love that. And I think that's such a great note to end on. Um, Blake, thank you very much for, for the insights you shared and thank you for creating the work that you do and taking the time to come on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, so thank you for being our first guest in 2021. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Ross. Awesome. And we'll catch you in the next one. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We believe that sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who's building a brand or needs some inspiration for their brand, please share this podcast with them. This is our third season. And we'd be grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button. So you're the first one to know when a new episode comes out. Or even better, leave us a review and tell the world how much you enjoy listening. This really helps. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork. NiceWork is a purpose-driven company helping people who want to make a dent in the world by building brands that people give a shit about. We're based in Johannesburg, South Africa, and serve companies around the world. If you'd like to know more, partner with us, or make a suggestion, reach out at www.nicework.co.za. And if you're one of those really old-school people, send us a letter, and we'll make you a mixtape.